Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 17, which we began last week. I don't know if you've ever been up here and looked at the podium. <laughs> the crazy thing about it is I always come up here and I have all these sticky notes. I mean, half of this thing, the thing here is covered with sticky notes. And I guess they're my, my, uh, kind of my security blankets. The crazy thing about it is even when I think of something I want to draw from my notes, I can't find it. So sometimes you'll see me looking for something, and finally I just kind of, and, and when I know it's here somewhere, but I got so much stuff up here I can't find, figure out where it is. But I don't even use them. I don't even use these study notes. Very, very rarely do I, whatever, they're just, they're just kind of there. So if you ever see them and you would go, oh gosh, look at all that, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but one of the things I do when I prepare for sermons is I go over it many, many times, almost like I'm taking an examination. It's almost like by the time I get ready to preach on Sunday morning, I've almost memorized those verses that we're going to look at and, and, and I'm mindful of all the different things that we're going to emphasize, realizing that, you know, from every verse you can get many, many, many sermons. I might be able to preach on the same verse on for a long time. I know that James Boyce preached uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 for months when he first did his study of the book of Genesis. And he took like 13 years to preach through the book of Romans, you know, those kinds of things. We could always go into more detail, uh, but at the same time, it's very easy to go too light on detail. You know, to go at such a pace that, uh, that you miss all the golden nuggets that are there in the Word of God before you. And let me tell you, in this book of Revelation, there are lots of them. <laughs> lots of them. I, I've, I've just really super-duper enjoyed my study of this and my presenting it to you on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're not going to get through chapter 17 today. We're going to do uh, get a little bit beyond where we were last week. Uh, but let me read beginning with verse 1. And the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. This comes immediately on the vision with the uh, seven bowl, uh, golden bowls of wrath that were poured out upon the earth. Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth who made drunk, uh, were made drunk with the wine of her immorality and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns and the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and jewels having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality and upon her forehead a name was written a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I tell you, I will, shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was as it... Uh, uh, was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and to go to destruction and those who dwell on 
the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life of the fence from the foundations of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mounds on which the woman sits. They are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other one has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which he saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to, to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are, those, are the called and chosen and faithful. We'll stop there. Well, we started last week uh, talking about the one that uh, you know sometimes called the prostitute, sometimes called the harlot. I call the seductress because her weapon is seduction. Her purpose is to lead people away from Christ. And over the generations, she has shown herself to be very effective at doing that. She's clothed in purple and scarlet from verse 14. If you know this, purple was the color of royalty. They used an extract that came from particular shellfish, which were rather rare, and so the, the dye was very expensive, and so only, only the royalty or the very wealthy could afford purple in, uh, in those days. She also is adorned with scarlet, which was the color of Rome. I don't know if you remember this, but if you see the Roman uniforms, the cloaks that the soldiers wore were scarlet in color. Uh, we also know that one of those robes was draped on Jesus by those Roman soldiers as they brought him and persecuted him and put the crown of thorns on his head to mock him. She's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearl, pearls. Those riches and those precious things that very often capture the hearts of people uh, and draw them away uh, from the truth. Uh, some ways, when we read the description of this, this, this harlot, she sounds hideous. Seven heads and ten horns. Not what I would classify as a good-looking woman. <laughs> but at the same time, there are things about her that are designed to seduce people. To draw people away from the truth. We know this, that uh, she may not technically be the evil one, but she is a, a representation of the evil one. He's the one that is behind this. She has in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, unclean things. Same word is used here that you find in 
the vision recorded in Acts that Peter had of the sheet coming down that was full of unclean things, things that were uh, ceremonially unclean, animals. The same sort of thing here, things that are not worthy to be in the presence of God. Now notice here she has a gold cup. She has one little gold cup. This, in essence, my friends, is an antithesis, like we've seen so many times in these scriptures, an antithesis of those seven golden bowls of wrath. That this is her answer to that. And the only thing she could come up with is a little cup compared to these big golden bowls. Full of unclean things, immoralities that she pours out upon people. She has a name on her forehead, and that name is Babylon the Great. Years ago, when I was at a Bible conference, it wasn't just for pastors, it was a Ligonier conference or something like that, one of the pastors that I knew stood up at one time and and asked R.C. Sproul, uh, what would you say would be the the, the books that every pastor should have in his library? What would be maybe the, 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 the four or five books that you would recommend that every pastor ought to have? And I wasn't surprised by most of them, but I was surprised by one of them. That he suggested that every pastor should have a copy of St. Augustine's City of God. Now, it just so happened that I already had a copy of it. I had a copy that was actually was passed down to me from my grandfather. And I wish I could say to you this morning that I've read the whole thing, because it's one of those long, difficult treatises that is not, you know, just casual, everyday reading. It's one of those things that you have to really focus on and concentrate on, and it is literally hundreds of pages of little, teeny, tiny words. The reason he wrote that book was this. It was because when Rome fell around 400 A.D. to the Visigoths, the Christian church was blamed for the fall of the Roman Empire. Because that time, by that time, the Roman Empire had become Christianized. And so people were saying that Christianity made Rome weak. Christianity is responsible for the fall of Rome. And that was just too much for Augustine to listen to. He had to make a response. And the city of God is his response to that claim. And and, and in that book, what he does is he makes a distinction between what he calls the city of men and the city of God. And what the argument is here is that Rome didn't fall because of the city of God. Rome fell because of the city of men. Because men, the city of men, is evil. And Rome fell because Rome was evil and wicked. So if you ever have a afternoon and it's rainy and 
Give it a shot. James Boyce, in his book, Two Cities, and there's a copy of that in the library that I put in there years ago, picks up on that same theme. And we see that theme active all through this book of Revelation. This distinction that is made repeatedly between those who are followers of God, true followers of God, that have the seal of the Father and the Son, their names imprinted on their foreheads. And then we have this other group, this group of people that bear the mark of the beast. Both reflections of this con or this idea of these two conflicting cities that exist among men. That one is the city of men, driven by sin, driven by evilness, by wickedness. They have a king. His name is Lucifer. And they oppose the city of God. It's a conflict that has been going on since the church began. It's a conflict that started actually in the Garden of Eden. Where the unrighteous strike down the righteous. Out of jealousy. After passions for power. It's been the history of the world. Boyce's argument is it's taking place in America as we speak. We see it. Everyone in this room can remember a time when just the general sense of morality in this nation was extremely, just a little different, but extremely 180 degrees different than what it is for the average person today. That so many things today are accepted as being moral and just a way of doing things that, that, that 50 years ago would have been condemned by 99% of the people that lived in our nation. It's almost as if the world has flip-flopped just in our time. We talked about this a lot last week. The abominations of the earth seem to be growing. There seems to be a good number of people following the seductress. It's easy to give ground, guys and gals. Too easy to give ground. But if anyone is going to be outspoken in our land in our day 
It's going to be the church. We have to speak forth. Hear me. With kindness and gentleness, not judgmentalism. Judgmentalism will do nothing but turn people off. They will not listen to a word you have to say. But when you approach people with gentleness and kindness, you're going to find that most people will at least give you the time of day to listen to what you have to say. And this is one of the big things, I think one of the weaknesses of the church is, is a reputation the church has out there in the world today is that it's just a bunch of, it's a group of judgmental people that want to tell everybody else where they're wrong and everybody else how they're supposed to live. And at the same time, I look at their lives and I don't see them living the way they're telling me to do. It's one thing to talk a good talk, but it's another thing to live a good life. None of which any of us can do apart from the Spirit of God working in us. We have to lean upon the Spirit, and that Spirit will enable us to do things we cannot do apart from it. Babylon the Great. You can see very clearly as we move into these chapters toward the end of this book that there is a distinction that is between the city of men, which goes by the name of Babylon the Great, and the city of God, which goes by the name of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. A contrast over and over again between the two of them in these remaining chapters that we have to study. The first time we hear this phrase, Babylon the Great was mentioned by King Nebuchadnezzar who was one of the, the, the kings of the Babylonian Empire and the, he was the king in the days of David or Daniel rather, I'm sorry. And we're told in the scriptures that he went and he looked out upon Babylon and he saw this great city before him. And he was prideful with the idea, look what I did. I did this. Now, if you know the rest of the story, God humbled him. I mean, and he humbled him in a way that he's rarely humbled anybody. And let me just say to you, this is really interesting because we have historical evidence that this actually took place. And that evidence has nothing to do with the Bible. We have ancient records that tell the story, this very story of Nebuchadnezzar that we have recorded in Scripture. That God humbled him to the point that he left people and he went out in the countryside on all fours and he ate grass like a cow. And his nails grew like the nails of an eagle, and he, his hair became like feathers, and etc., etc. 
etc. What I'm telling you guys is this really happened. This is a real historical event. But God humbled him. God broke his back. And eventually he restored Nebuchadnezzar to his place. I mean, what a, what a neat story that really is. I mean, it is just a demonstration of God saying, basically, enough is enough. You think you're such a big shot. Well, let me just show you who you really are. And he did it. On occasion, you'll see people fall away from the church and then be restored later on. That happens. Sometimes it has to do with pride. Let me ask you something. Are you a prideful person? What do you think other people would say about you? Would they say you're prideful or would they say you're humble? Would, you know, if someone asked uh, ask another person to describe you, would humility, humbleness be one of the things that would come out of in that description. Are you humble? Well, as we move on, we're going to, be, we're going to study over and over again these central messages to this book of Revelation. And one of those is the manifestation of the greatness of the glory of God over and over again in different ways. But there's another one, and it has that message of judgment, that, 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 that judgment that, that really ought to humble people, that ought to break people like Nebuchadnezzar was broken. The sad thing about it is this is we're going to see. We've seen it with these, these bowls of wrath that were poured out upon people. And, and they suffered these great miseries. And even in the midst of their misery, they refused to repent of their evilness and their wickedness. We've seen it over and over again. From the very beginning of the book almost. Chapter 6 is the first rumblings of this kind of thing you see going on. People sitting under God's judgment. And even at that time, there, there, no one at that point is doubting that there's God any longer. There are no atheists left. They know that he exists. But even then, they're not willing to give him the glory and the honor he has due him. They will not repent. They will not repent. Their punishment is eternal because they will not repent. Ever. If anything, their hatred of God will grow into eternity. Not lessen. It's a sad thing. Verse 6, the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Have you ever wondered what is going on here when you've heard about a Christian martyr? Have you ever wondered, where was God in this picture? Why did God let this happen? He could have stopped it. What purpose could this have served? I could imagine if we could canvas all of those martyrs that went through all of that. If they had to do it all over again. To the man, to the woman, to the child, they would do it all over again. See, John is considering this because we study the martyrs already to some degree in our study of Revelation. Remember, all the way back, remember Polycarp of Smyrna, who's not mentioned here in the Bible, but he's mentioned, he was the bishop of Smyrna, one of those seven churches. A disciple of John. Killed because he preached Christ. There was an Antipas in Pergamum. We don't know any details about him, but he gave his life for Jesus. We talked about the Reformation back in October, and, and, and we don't really think too much about it, but there were countless martyrs in the Protestant Reformation. who gave their life willingly for Jesus. Now you can imagine that very often when someone's sentenced to be, to have their life taken when they're issued capital punishment, and you can imagine that very often they are trying to talk their way out of it at the very end, and this, that, and the other, and talking about injustice, and talking about this, and talking about that, and trying to convince people not to go through with this. They're terrified people. When you read the accounts of the martyrs, that's not what you read. You read about people who go to death with the light of Christ in their face. Saying things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. John sees those things, and it makes no sense to him. You and I hear it and we go, how can this be? That God would let these sorts of things happen to his own children. Well, all of those martyrs, every single one of them know this, that God had a purpose in it. He had a purpose in it. He does not give up his children lightly, ever. But it serves his purpose in a way that you and I just cannot see at this point. 
Anyone ever accuse you of having tunnel vision? You know, we see right, what is right in front of you, but you don't see anything to the side or above you or behind you. Or, Of course, some of you probably have been accused of having eyes in the back of your head at one time or another. That kind of thing. To see, this is one of our challenges as believers. And that is not to have Christian tunnel vision. Not to get in this, this, this thing where we see the things that, that are immediately in front of us. And those things that are immediately in front of us are the things that usually have the most to do with us. It's easy for us to lose sight of what's on the periphery. We get so wrapped up in our own life, you know, and what's going on with me, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and look what happened to, 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 to this member of my family, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy for us to become self-consumed. And all of us are guilty of it to some degree. Every one of us. But I'm going to be honest with you this morning, guys. That Christian, that picture of the Christian life is not in Scripture anywhere. I mean, everywhere is go beyond where you are. Get beyond where you are. Look, look in the distance. John doesn't understand at this point, but let me tell you. John understands now. He no longer has that tunnel vision. He sees the things of God. And to some degree, he sees God's purpose even in things like martyrdom. The funny thing about it is, out of the 11, well, we know Judas, you know, went out and hung himself. But the other 10 guys, or 10 of the 11 left, were all martyrs. Every one of them gave their life doing nothing but preaching Jesus in foreign places. John's the only one that wasn't martyred. But he sees it and he wonders greatly about it. What would you think of God if he had tunnel vision?
nothing he can ask of you that is too little. Did Jesus live for Jesus? Did Jesus do what he did all for Jesus? See, Jesus is a lot of things. Some people want to make you think he's just our example. He's not just our example, but he, in fact, is our example. He's a lot more. There's a sense in which God owns us. He's bought us. He has expectations for every one of his children. And some of those he has for every one of us are the same. And, but at the same time, you look at our lives and accept them, you're going to find their nuances of, of, for me, for my life, and for, for Alex Erb's life, and for Lynn Hyland's life that are different. One of the big things that we ought to be struggling with is figuring out exactly what God wants to do with us. Exactly what God wants us to do. We're going to do the Lord's Supper this morning.